The Drive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at the factors affecting our attitude and actions to motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we look at news stories including MIT's new self-driving car navigates without road markings. We have a lovely chat with motoring commentator Will Hagen about the early history of the imaginative, ingenious car company Alvis, which started in 1919. And Brian Smith, Errol Smith and I take a merry look at some unusual stories of the day, including the royal wedding cars and a drunk mower driver arrested after cutting someone else's grass. Have a question or comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Now, to begin the program, let's have the news. China will cut the import duty on passenger cars in what appears to be one of its first concessions in a trade dispute with the United States. Motor vehicle import duties will be cut to 15% from the current 25% from the 1st of July. While 15% represents a reduction, they are still high by international standards, and it was unclear if they would eventually be reduced further as part of the deal. U.S. negotiators had been seeking a reduction to the U.S. level, where auto import duties are just 2.5%. Import tariffs for auto parts will be cut to 6% from mostly around 10%. The move will be a major boost to prestige car makers such as BMW, Mercedes, Audi and electric car maker Tesla. Keyless ignition systems that let start buttons to let drivers leave key fobs in their pockets provide a lot of convenience but a new report sheds light on a failed government effort to prevent users from accidentally leaving their cars on. The New York Times recently reported that at least 20 deaths have been linked to carbon monoxide poisoning caused by cars left idling in garages when their drivers thought their engines were off. The Society of Automotive Engineers had previously issued a report calling on automakers to install an externally audible or visual alert when all doors are closed, the key fob is not present and the engine is still running. Automakers had largely rejected the proposal, even though the cost of the industry would be less than $500,000 to provide a coding and software update for millions of vehicles. Overdrive has been reporting on many innovations in the trucking sector, including Tesla's new electric long-haul truck. Recently, Shell Global unveiled its Airflow Starship Semi, which features a solar power plant and a more aerodynamic cab. The Airflow Starship's 5,000-watt solar panels provide energy for electrical components such as lights and wipers. Other than the aerodynamic design, the hybrid electric axle system and custom automatic tyre inflation make the truck more fuel efficient. Open grille shutters allow air to cool the engine and they automatically close to reduce drag when cooling isn't needed. The boat tail design on the back also reduces drag. The truck is currently attempting to set a fuel economy record on a trip across the United States. 
Tesla, which unveiled its electric long-haul truck last year to much fanfare, has been hit with a $2 billion patent suit last month by a firm that claims Tesla stole elements of its hydrogen-powered semi-truck design. Elon Musk, CEO of The Boring Company, as well as Tesla, has begun to lay out plans for how his interpretation of future transportation will look in Los Angeles. The Boring Company will build an urban transport system called Loop, and Musk thinks the transportation solution will revolutionise how individuals travel. The Boring Company originally envisaged tunnels to transport people, cyclists and vehicles on electric-powered high-speed sleds. Earlier this month, Musk said plans to transport cars had been put on hold to focus on mass transit. Thus, Loop will focus on pedestrians, at least initially. Musk said Loop will be able to transport riders at speeds of up to 150 miles per hour and it will cost just $1. Specifically, he said, travelling from downtown Los Angeles to LAX airport would take roughly 8 minutes. Researchers at MIT have built a self-driving car that doesn't rely on the intense amount of technology needed to make self-driving cars work in urban environments. Instead, the car is meant for use on rural roads. MIT calls the technology Map Light. The new technology works by combining GPS data with sensors that collect data on angular velocity and linear acceleration instead of looking for road markings. In its first test, Map Light worked exactly as it was designed to and was able to detect the road ahead more than 100 feet in advance. MIT researchers eliminated the need for expensive dense mapping used by companies like Google's Waymo or GM's Cruise Automation and have designed a way for cars to manoeuvre without road markings. Sweden has built a 1.2 mile long slot car track into a road outside Stockholm to test a new approach to charging electric cars and trucks. Three steel rails run down the centre of the road with slots between them. Unlike a kid's slot car setup, the rails are not electrified. The electric contacts are buried in the bottom of the slots beneath the rails to allow pedestrians and other road traffic to cross over the rails safely. The slot car road is designed to give electric cars a quick charge to carry them along highways and to give electric cars enough battery charge to reach their final destination. It is not meant to replace home or depot charging. Since electric cars don't come equipped with tail hooks like Navy fighter jets, drivers who want to use the road would have to have the contacts added. If the design is a success, the government plans to extend it to other public roadways. It estimates it can roll out technology to 12,000 miles of roadway for about $765,000 per mile. And that has been the news. A few colleagues have been telling me a lot about Alvis motor cars. Well, regaling in all its positive sense might be a better word. The company that became Alvis Car and Engineering was a British manufacturing business in Coventry, started in 1919 and ceased in 1967. Why did the subject come up? Let me be very brief in the introduction. It started when my brother-in-law showed me the workings of an SU carburetor. Stick with me here. The SU carburetor was built in volume for most of the 20th century. My first car had one. I mentioned this on Facebook. There was a wave of nostalgic comments. One from a colleague, well-known motoring commentator, Will Hagen. He spoke of the famous Alvis Speed 20, which had triple SU carburetors. 
To be regaled, as in entertained, amused and delighted, is just not a strong enough word. There is much to talk about, and who better to do that than Will Hagen himself, who joins me on the line now. Will, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, David. You know, we could be talking here forever. Oh, yes. There's a lot to talk about. When you talk of a company, I mean, the development of motoring generally, but in this period, in the 1920s, 30s, when the Alvis Car Company really was, I was going to say revolutionary, they were in a way. I mean, they'd made a front-wheel drive production car in 1928. They had the world's first all-synchro four-speed gearbox in about 1933. They had built-in jacks and all four wheels in their cars in the 1930s. They had adjustable dampers, for goodness sake. You know, they were really looking to the future and indeed in that era very very highly regarded you know that era is often referred to as the roaring 20s and we think of f scott fitzgerald and the great gatsby as as uh, elite in that yet it was the roaring 20s in motoring as well bit of grease under the fingernails but some really great developments they were 100 mile an hour motor cars in the 1930s big brakes good handling, independent front suspension, and uh, massive lighting on them, and 12-volt electrical systems, which, of course, Voxy didn't have in the 1950s. So, you know, it was a really interesting era indeed. And there was actually uh, an eccentric uh, butterfly um, uh, nut uh, adjusting the fan belt tension, and only... It it was just to drive the fan belt. It didn't drive other things as it does in modern cars, so you could remove it without any effect. But it had enough cooling, in other words, in the engine that most of the time you didn't have to fit the fan belt. And uh, they were a very lively car. They were a much quicker car than the the SS90 and the SS100 Jag. The the Jaguars were marvellous-looking cars, and they were two-door or two-door, two-seater cars. But the 90 particularly was a quite modest-performing car with a modest engine in it, whereas these were overhead valve, inline six-cylinder engines. And later, indeed, there was a 4.3-litre version, which, um, when it went on display in Melbourne for the motor show down there, after that, um, the Victorian police actually ran one as a, as a police car. <laughs> and they won races, the 200. Oh, yes, yes. Well, that's right. Um, go back to Brooklands in the 1920s. And Alvis's, one of its early models, their first model was a thing called the 1030, but by their fourth model, they'd got to a thing called the 1250, originally with a 1.5-litre engine, and then it went up to 1,645 cc's. And uh, these claimed 50-odd horsepower back in those days. Now, racing was at Brooklands. It was the world's first banked circuit ahead of Indianapolis in the United States, And there was an event called the JCC 200, the Junior Car Club 200. Well, in 1923, an Alvis 1250 with 1.6 litre engine averaged 93.29 miles an hour for the 200-mile race to win it. And indeed, it was the first British brand to win that race and uh, outran a Bugatti, outran a Delahaye and so on. Now, the Alvis, uh, John Lang from the Victorian Alvis Club is restoring a Speed 20, an SA, I think he called it, Speed 20. Yeah. His mate, Barry Turner, I believe, is putting a bit together. They're getting the front end from a number of places. There's a rumour that that front end that they've got used to belong to a car that you owned. (laughs) Yes, I bought a Speed 20 from Barry Turner 
And I have to say, I didn't, uh, didn't look after it very well. In fact, we had a fire in it in my parents' backyard or the backyard of my parents' house. Mm. There is some folklore about that. that uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I must ask you more about it. <laughs> you see whether, whether it's right and whether my memory sort of coincides with it. <laughs> well, I think there is a, an, an element of folklore. I won't say fake news, it's, uh, but it does get a little bit... Uh, Perhaps exaggerated, but who knows? But nonetheless, you owned one, and it had that front independent suspension, and they are looking at using that in restoring another car. Well, excellent, and I'm delighted to hear that. The car I had was a four-door Tourer. It was an open car, and it wasn't in good order, in truth, when I got it. And uh, back in those days, you needed a fair bit of money or expertise, and I didn't have either, to restore these things. They had wood frame bodies, and uh, to get somebody to do the wood frame sections that actually gave the strength to the body was, uh, was quite expensive because it was all hand done. Yes. And uh, so one way and another, it, um, we, we had our problems with that. But uh, what had happened was that I'd had some modest cars, and uh, I got introduced to Alvis and realised very quickly that here was a car with sporty performance, great integrity in terms of the way that it worked uh, way ahead, better brakes, suspension system and so on than some of the British cars of the 1950s that had been made to a price. And for instance, you remember uh, lever arm shock absorbers on on Austins of the early 1950s and things which got tired after about 10 miles on a bumpy Australian road, you know, and the car lurched all over the place. They also built some rather stunning-looking cars, the Duxback. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, they were based on the, spe- on the 1250. In fact, in the 1250 days, that, that car that uh, won at Brooklands in 1923 at 93-odd miles an hour average speed, the production versions of those came with various bodies. You could have a, a four-door, four-seater tourer body. You could have a sedan body. But you could also have, as you say, David, a, a duck's back or a beetle back. And a duck's back is the most surprising car. It comes down, firstly, there's only one door for this two... Well, it's more than a two-seater car because it's got a dicky seat in the back. But in the main section of the car, it's a two-seater car with a, a door on the left-hand side. Down the right-hand side, coming straight out of the engine, up through the side of the bonnet and along the side of the car, almost where the driver could rest his arm, is a massive exhaust pipe. <laughs> and it goes right down the right-hand side of the car to the, down to the tail where it's got a lovely fishtail end of the exhaust. And then the body pinches in to a pointed tail and it's undercut as well. So under the, un, in the undercut is the spare wheel all exposed. And then in the upper section of the undercut is a three-piece opening section where a third passenger can sit. And uh, they were 23-inch wheels and very spindly, so they were quite narrow. And uh, so they weren't turning very fast at, uh, at 60 or 70 miles an hour. And indeed, a duck's back or a beetle back a sports-bodied 1250 in the 1920s with a 1.6-litre engine was guaranteed to do 80 miles an hour. Now, as you'd know, you could go to the 1960s and not get a 1.6-litre car that would do 80 miles an hour. Mm. The Duxback has got almost a little bit of chitty-chitty bang-bang about it. (laughs) Oh, it has. It's wonderful. 
And, you know, there are people like Max Houston, for instance, who was one of my early educators on matters of Alvis. Um, I joined the Alvis Car Club, <coughs> pardon me, in the 1960s. And I remember sitting in a meeting one night and they talked about the all-night trial coming up. And I said, I was sitting next door to Max, who was a motor mechanic. He had a service station, uh, which was basically a workshop that also sold a bit of petrol on the outskirts of Sydney. And I said, what's the all-night trial? And he said, a thinly disguised road race. (laughs) (laughs) The Alvis that they're restoring, there is a rumour, and uh, as we talked about folklore, it's got to be proved yet, that it may have been one of the three cars used in Hollywood movies in the 1930s. Aha! Well, as I said, uh, we get uh, some great motor historians and commentators such as yourself, and the subject will wander and uh, touch many (laughs) wonderful things. Will, I appreciate your time greatly. I'm honoured to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And that's Will Hagen. We were talking, well, to start with, about SU carburetors led to Alvis cars, which can lead to anything, six degrees of separation. You can hear the longer interview with Will on our website. Go to drivenmedia.com.au. This is Overdrive across Australia. Well, we come to the end of the program where we talk about uh, those issues to do with motoring that perhaps just aren't about the mechanical, aren't just about the technical, but take on even the metaphorical. And to help me discuss that, I have on the line Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. And Errol Smith. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. G'day, Brian. Well, we cannot go without talking about the Royal Wedding. I watched the Royal Wedding in the best way possible. I recorded it and then put it on fast forward with an occasional stop for the cars, of course, and maybe a little bit of the music. It took about 30 minutes of my life, which I think is about the limit for this sort of thing. (laughs) I had nothing to do or interest in the build-up to it or what have you. I quite like it as an event to look at what it really means metaphorically, and one can't go past talking about the cars that were driven. The Queen and Phil, a bespoke Bentley, that was presented to her by the British automotive industry as a gift to celebrate her Golden Jubilee in 2002, which is rather interesting because it's owned by the Volkswagen company. (laughs) Yes. Is there a message there, gentlemen, that uh, perhaps Germany lost the war but won the peace? Yes, don't mention the war, David. Hmm. Um, Built from old bombshells. Handcrafted, a Bentley Anage R, features unique bodywork. Apparently, I think there's only two of these state limousines built. They're built mm. on, on a standard Anage sort of platform, but uh, they're made a bit bigger and a bit more powerful, a bit more yeah. torque. Well, it, it, it may not be made from old bombs, but it is bomb-proof. Ah, yes. Or at least, or at least bulletproof. <laughs> it's comfortable too, so it's modern. Mm. I, only saw, I only saw mere moments of the... Royal Wedding stuff, but I have to say I I did like seeing some of the old cars. Megan Markle's mother, Daria, who I thought looked very much on her own in many ways, you know, that uh, just uh, skimming through it, but that's all right. She got her own Bentley uh, Mulsan. Mulsan, it sounds almost like a sheep brand, doesn't it? Mm. I've never I've never liked that name. Uh, but she arrived. They're six hundred and fifty thousand dollar American dollars, I think that is, in its standard form, but. Of course, Megan came with a 1950 Rolls-Royce Phantom IV state car. Now, I think it is metaphorical, really, isn't it? It was the time up until then that Britain had some degree of respectability, and, of course, after that, they pretty well (laughs) lost a lot. 
Yeah. That was a beautiful yes. car, though. I mean, that car is sort of like the pinnacle of, of – I mean, it suits the whole royal wedding setting because it's so ancient and anachronistic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, 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 the modern, modern uh, wedding couple going back to the 50s. But, of course, uh, they then left in an electric E-type Jaguar. Now, I think it, this is symbolic because it was a left-hand drive – which means that after Brexit, they've got to look to America to sort of you know ma- maintain where they're going. I thought that was an odd it was an odd choice to have a, a left hand drive one. It's basically saying you know it, it's a British car, but it's American. Mm. I agree. I, I, I was amazed to see that E type, and I thought it was beautiful, and I thought it was a, a wonderful. And then I realised, oh my god, it's left hand drive. I had no idea it was electric. But uh, yeah, I just thought, why why a left hand drive vehicle? Maybe I'm I'm watching this through a mirror or something. Maybe it's a nod, a nod to Megan, who is American after all. Oh, okay. But she didn't drive, so that doesn't really make much sense. When I saw it, I thought they'd let her drive, which I thought was a wonderful image. But, of course, it mm. was, wasn't true. It, uh, it no. was a classic 1968 E-type convertible, and it went through the Jaguar's classic works restoration shop in England. They do a lot of that, but I tell you what, it's not cheap. They cost at least $500,000. Well, not quite that in America, but certainly in Australian dollars, possibly nearer $600,000. But it did look good, didn't it? Something old, something new, something borrowed and something blue. It sort of almost covered all that, didn't it? It did, indeed. Whose who's car was it? I think Jaguar lent them to there. A, a, a lovely British company, of course, owned by the Indian Tata Company now. <laughs> mm. Bit of... Reverse yes, and, colonialism, and and, and in, a, in a bit more of a nod to the um, to the Germans, Prince Harry turned up in a a, a fairly plain uh, V class Merc, which is basically a, their, their people mover for, for people who don't know the, the yes. models. Has he but, been uh, down the markets? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind the cost. Feel the width. <laughs> yes. He had to bring the booze in the back. That was the thing. <laughs> yeah. But, of course, the ultimate in their transport was uh, the uh, Ascot Landau, the carriage that uh, they drove away, four horsepower, because it had four... Well, actually, four horsepower, had four horses up the front. That means it's about three horsepower, because I think it was Watt who defined a horsepower at 50% more than the worker horse could do, so he could say that his two-horsepower engine did the work of three horses. I thought you meant one of them was a... (laughs) Was a passenger, you know, <laughs> one of the, pulling its weight. <laughs> one of them was on his way to the glue factory. <laughs> it, it was, of course, a two-door convertible, big wheels on the back, narrow tyres. The actual Crown Equerry, I believe, the, guess the guy that looks after all the horses, said the carriage was wonderfully bright, small, lovely carriage, easy for people to see. The passengers can sit up quite high. So it had a certain bit of SUV about it, really, didn't it? Oh, yeah, looking <laughs> over the... The trouble is you've got to look at a bunch of horses' asses. But uh, I, I guess there's always the risk. <laughs> what about the thing towing the carriage? <laughs> Yes, there's always the risk at dinner table. You're going to be seeing the same thing for the foreseeable future. <laughs> yes. Sorry, I think I stole your thunder. I beg your pardon. There, of course, there was that story of the Queen had a uh, another head of state and was taken in a in a carriage towed by horses, and as horses let out an almighty fart, 
And the Queen said uh, to the person, oh, I'm sorry about that. And he said, that's all right. I thought it was the horses. <laughs> I did offend a number of those of the devout persuasion when I noted that the lesson was taken from the Song of Songs, which in the Bible is actually an erotic poem. It doesn't mention wisdom and it doesn't even mention God but it is, in fact, being defined as probably one of the literature's great erotic poems. So it, it right. wasn't just about love. It was a bit about the, uh, the uh, rumpy-pumpy bit. bit. Oh. It's, uh, mm. Maybe they were foreshadowing the, uh, the, 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 the imminent pregnancy <laughs> of Megan. Well, she's going to have to be quick. She's about 36, isn't she? Divorced. A divorce. Oh. wonder what her ex thinks about a new, new boyfriend, <laughs> new, <laughs> new hubby. At least he's got more hair than the brother, or the inverted commas brother. <laughs> it was a shame that the father couldn't be there, wasn't it? Yeah, yes, it was, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a great tradition. And for Megan as well. Brian, you have a story for us. Certainly, David. This is uh, about trespassing on someone else's grass, cutting their grass, which, of course, means a little something a little different in Australia than it does in America. But um, 46-year-old Barry Ridge was caught driving a motorised lawnmower down the road and someone had, had actually rung the police because they reported him for um, for mowing their grass. He drove, drove onto the yard and started mowing their grass without permission. He didn't do a good enough job. <laughs> Apparently not. Well, he might not have finished because he then started heading down uh, County Road 100 North and the Johnson County Sheriff's Department uh, pulled him over and found that his eyes appeared glassy. I think they might have found that his feet appeared grassy as well. But he failed his breathalyzer. He had a, a blood alcohol of 0.189. And, but the most amazing thing is it's not the first time he was arrested for driving his lawnmower while drunk. So he's previously, a repeat he, Yeah, he's a repeat offender. So, uh, yeah, he's on trial. In fact, they're still awaiting trial for the first arrest. Um, so he's, he's got a bit of form in the, right. the uh, sort of phantom lawn mowing stakes. And apparently they, they impounded his mower. Yes. <laughs> I wonder how long they'll let his, let his grass get before they give it back to him. Well, did they empty the, the catcher? That's my question. It gets very clogged up if you don't empty the catcher. More grass than he had for personal use. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, lovely stuff. We've covered royalty and a number of quirky cases in America. What better way to finish the program? Errol Smith and Brian Smith, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. you David. And as I say, that's Errol and Brian, and they'll be back next week where we're going to talk about a leader of a nation who exaggerates and seeks praise for things that he didn't deserve. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Brian Smith, Errol Smith, Will Hagen, David Campbell and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.